0: Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowey. In today's episode, I'm joined by two guests to talk about the relationship between Labor and the Greens. My first guest today is Glenn Kefford. Glenn is a lecturer in political science in the School of Politics and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Hello, Glenn. Hi, Ben. I'm also joined by Rob Manwaring. Rob is an associate professor in the College of Business, Government and Law at Flinders University. Hello, Rob. Hi Ben. So before we start on our main topic today this is the first podcast we're recording on Monday the 11th. The election was called yesterday for the 21st of May so um, I don't know if we have anything specifically to say about that but I might jump to each of you and say if you have any thoughts about how the campaign has started just quickly and then we'll get to our main topic.
1: A six-week campaign tells you all you need to know about where the government thinks it's at right? That um, if they thought they were ahead, this would not be a six-week campaign. This would be a a sprint to the finish line. And clearly, this is just an attempt to drag it out and to hope that Labor messes up. That's their plan, right? And they clearly have a a view that um, Morrison can outlast Albanese over the course of a, a long, extended, probably quite boring and dull campaign. And that Albanese will eventually make a mistake. And that seems to be what they're banking on.
2: Yeah. And I'd back that in just to say that I think the coalition will, would, if they if they legally could, they would they would push this election back till next year if they if they were able to do so, because it's been a bad time for them in the polls. Uh, there's been lots of problems for Morrison in the last few weeks, and they need some clear air and the budget hasn't really provided that. So uh, they've gone for the long campaign, and I think uh, Glenn's quite right. They're going to try and ground down Albanese in their kind of in their campaign focus.
0: We will be doing podcasts probably every week between now and election day. I've got uh, six, possibly seven more episodes scheduled, including a couple after the election. So stay tuned. So Labor and the Greens, they have a complicated relationship. They compete for some of the same voters and many of the Greens' best prospects for winning parliamentary seats come at Labor's expense. Yet they also cooperate at times. Greens' voters' preferences are crucial for Labor victory and they can provide necessary votes to pass legislation for a Labor government. Rob, how is the relationship between Labor and the Greens at a federal level now? It's a good question,
2: Ben. And as you say, it's a really complicated relationship. Uh, at times, there seems to be a sort of... Uh, not a mutual respect than a sort of uh, recognition of each other's sort of positions on certain kind of policy issues. And at times there's a real sort of bitter tribalism that kind of takes place there. And so um, one of the interesting things that we did with some colleagues uh, a couple of years ago is we we did uh, some kind of empirical analysis of kind of the policy positions between Labour and the Greens. And there's this sort of intuitive feeling that because they're both broadly on the left, that there should be kind of scope for them to kind of cooperate. But it's probably a slightly more complicated picture than that so when we looked at um, a whole series of uh, sort of policy pledges and positions over about four election cycles um, you tend to find that there's both sort of areas where they converge but also areas where they sort of diverge so if you look at things like um, overlap between the parties policy positions uh, in many respects Uh, the Labour Party, much of their policy uh, in terms of what they present at particular elections tends to overlap much more strongly with the Liberals. So uh, in certain kind of areas, particularly around economic management, they have to kind of push towards the kind of the centre as we'd, we'd kind of see it. Whereas the Greens tend to consistently put out policies, as you would expect, on environment, on the welfare state in particular, and also on social issues. So what we kind of find is that there's a sort of, it's a complicated, um, fractious kind of relationship of, of times. And this kind of puts uh, a kind of sense of pressure on about how people think about it. But there's a camp in both Labour and the Greens who say, look, we're definitely different. We should be uh, campaigning apart. And in one sense, actually, we're much further apart than people like to think we are. And then there's a second kind of group who are kind of like, actually, we need a progressive block. And a progressive bloc would basically shut out uh, the centre right for elections. And so in one sense, we can do this. But it's a really tribal, painful debate. There's a, there's a very interesting book called, I think it's called All That's Left, by Tim Supalmazan and Nick Darrenfirth. And it, there's these two great chapters in it. So on the one chapter, it's uh, one of the writers says, yes, basically, let's have a progressive bloc. Labour and Greens can work together and they can stamp out and increasingly, um, you know, center left kind of ground. And in the very next chapter saying, well, actually we're very different. The only way Labour is really gonna win elections is if they really take on the kind of the green vote. So my kind of my summary or my snapshot is that really that it's a fraught relationship on kind of policy and distancing, and that actually makes it really hard. And so at times there can be mutual respect and we've seen it at the state level, particularly Labor uh, Greens do work well or can work well. You've seen it in the ACT, for example. Um, but then on the other hand, there's this long uh, bitterness that kind, of, that kind of kicks in and particularly around the CPRS. So if you ever follow any of this social media, there is still a long standing uh, sense of recriminations about the failure to get a, a CPRS up there. So as you kind of say, it's a it's a complex relationship. And on policy issues, yes, they're broadly left, but that actually masks probably a much more complex uh, policy set of positions between those two parties.
0: Rob, um, I don't want to go into depth on it, but just for our younger listeners, can you spell out what a CPRS is? The,
2: <laughs> that's, I wish you hadn't asked me that. It's a, <laughs> what is it? it's a carbon pollution reduction scheme. Have I got my acronyms correct?
0: That's right. And it's a, it was a form of an emissions trading scheme that the Labor government proposed in 2009 and that... Um, failed to get support from the Greens. That's right. And I think
2: the the thing I just recognise or would say is that basically since the period of, say, the 1980s and onwards, slightly even before as well, there's been what's called the greening of the centre-left. So most centre-left political parties have adopted or shifted to recognize the kind of threat of climate change and environment policies and that's been incorporated into their policies. So of course when Kevin Rudd became prime Minister 2007, first thing he does is sign the Kyoto Protocol and makes this pledge around a kind of emissions trading scheme and the the failure of that to kind of uh, to take launch or then when it was ripped down uh, kind of by ABBA, still there's still long-standing enmity I think between both parties around this kind of failure and this is, this is still part of this this the complexity of their of their relationship. Yeah, look, I
1: think those debates online on Twitter about the CPRS and the whole um, two thousand and nine to two thousand and thirteen period are a little bit like um, someone using their nails on the blackboard for me. Um, I just I can't stand it. Um, whenever I see the the, that debate emerging on Twitter I immediately shut down my computer and like go for a run through the street or something because it just sends me sends me crazy I mean the, the purity test that goes on between both sets of supporters and members it's um, it's truly irritating I mean I think one additional aspect here is also just the the different uh, tendencies within the greens at the state level where I think you can see this sort of play out slightly differently where I think, There are certain states, Western Australia, I think Queensland, especially now, where um, there's a different view held within those state-based Green parties as compared to, say, the Victorian Greens right now, where um, there's different tendencies. And I guess this all comes back to the whole idea about, okay, if we end up in a minority government situation, how well is everyone going to play together? And the, the level of animosity amongst supporters of both parties, it's it's visceral at times right so i mean i think that labor are not just saying this in you know, a pre-election sense that they don't want to be in a minority government situation with the greens because no one ever wants to make those promises anymore i actually think they don't want to be in a minority government <laughs> situation with the greens it's not it's not hyperbole right like they 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 do not want to be in a power sharing arrangement and you know i did a study with um, a colleague of mine in ireland about minority government a few years ago, and one of the things we found was that, whether it was at the state level or um, at the federal level, and we looked at all these case studies in Australia and Ireland, that the major party in the minority government situation almost always were getting punished, and the minor party involved actually generally did well out of it across all of the cases. Um, and I think that's the perception within Labor, and that their view is that if they go into minority government with the Greens, that they will get destroyed?
0: The minority government dynamics are quite different in different uh, jurisdictions. So, uh, you know, we've only had one case of the Greens supporting Labor federally in 2010, and actually it was quite a productive parliament. Quite a lot got done, but Labor came out the other end and lost the next election badly, and whether that was for that reason or not. But there were definitely a sense from Labor people that they uh, see that as... Being held to their feet, held to the fire in a way that they don't want to be. Um, and it's interesting as well that we all these debates about the CPRS often the next parliament, where a lot of legislation got passed, including an emissions trading scheme effectively, gets ignored by Labour people. They kind of step back past their legislative achievements to look at their legislative failures in order when they're having that fight with the Greens. But um, and then you have Tasmania where it's happened a couple of times, but Labour and the Greens are. a Deeply in conflict. On the other hand, you have the ACT where Labor and the Greens uh, have now been sharing power since 2008, including with ministers since 2012. And now there's a number of Greens ministers. It's really a proper coalition government. But I think a lot of that for the ACT is the ACT has particular kind of policy agendas which makes the two parties it's easier for them to get along. You know, there's no resource industry in the ACT that is a part of the Labor base that's that's a source of conflict.
1: Yeah, I think those economic explanations are pretty important in this relationship, right, especially between blue-collar trade unions, um, which, you know, if we're thinking about some of those big blue-collar trade unions who are generally part of labour right, this is where a lot of the friction is between that blue-collar labour right unions and um, the Greens over, you know, the one of the key issues of our times, right? About climate change, about how do we deal with the extractive industries, renewables, all of this debate, however it manifests across the country in different jurisdictions. Um, This is where most of the tension generally um, resides. So when we looked at the policy mapping,
2: one of the biggest points of difference between the two parties, Labour and the Greens, was around economic policy. So the mapping tool we had looked at like pure economic growth strategies, and then what are called like anti-growth strategies, which is really like uh, looking at like a new economy type of thing. And this was like one of the biggest areas of divergence. The Labour Party, in one sense, are pretty much an old school um, kind of centre-left Social Democratic Party with their kind of strong commitment to economic growth. It's something that Albanese made in a number of his vision speeches whereas they're dipping their toe into trying, looking at kind of sustainable forms of economic growth and so forth. But they're not in, they haven't gone down this road in any way that it's sort of the same way that they're like their centre-left competitors have in Europe, for example. And this is kind of still a bit of a fault line between Labour and the Greens really. So economic policy really is one of the areas where it's sometimes half of them.
0: Why don't we talk a little bit more about the current electoral context. We're talking a bit about policy differences and attitudes to government and that's definitely a factor i mean one other point on that is that i think a lot of for a lot of greens people they're they're pro-proportional representation they look at other countries where they have pr and they say why can't labor work with us in that way you know that they can have a civilized mature relationship where but like that's not the situation you know labor in this country has never had to accept that they would have to be partners with the greens and they would just prefer to have the freedom to do it themselves and not have to work together so I don't think that's going to go away as, as long as the option of being able to govern on their own is, is available um, let's talk a little bit about this election um, I'm actually going to start in the Senate. So the Greens polling hasn't been amazing, but it's held up reasonably well. And it's a bit hard to know um, whether they're going to see their vote go backwards or not. Sometimes they do have a bit of a fall in support when Labor's on the rise. That when, Like when you've had a conservative government, people are disappointed with them, ready for Labor to come back to power. They're excited about Labor winning. That can sometimes shift a few votes from Greens back to Labor either just because they like the Labor Party or, you know, plenty of people in this country do vote tactically and just say, I don't want to risk that voting Greens will make it harder for Albanese to form government. That's definitely a factor. Um, But in the Senate, the Greens only have three senators up for election this time and they do have good chances in the other three states. Uh, Labor and the Greens between them, though, need to pick up seats to get possibly a more progressive Senate that might be more cooperative with an Albanese government. So in that sense... You know, It's in Labor's interests to see the Greens poach some seats off the right. Yeah, so there's a couple of those races um, and then you've got New South Wales where uh, the left already holds three seats and if the Greens do win a seat there, they would be grabbing that seat off Labor and that's the seat that Christina Keneally is vacating. They're definitely a, a
2: part of, particularly the left part of the Labor Party, would like, wouldn't mind seeing a, a strong progressive showing in the Parliament and certainly they would like to see, you know, they don't want to see One Nation... family first bobbing up it becomes quite hard for them to kind of secure kind of deals uh kind of around this but they would never publicly come out about it they've just uh they might tacitly want it Uh, there's obviously going to be i think uh interesting state by state dynamics on the on the kind of senate vote so here in south australia for example uh at the state election the Greens' vote bobbed up again, partly because the Xenophon team wasn't running, but Nick Xenophon's come back again in South Australia, uh, trying for a tilt at the Senate. So there's a sort of the 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 atmospherics have got a little bit more complicated, and and I think as Glenn was alluding to, the 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 Greens that they have different dynamics in the different states and territories, and therefore I think some of that will will play out at a kind of a state level, which is which is a bit more ambiguous, but. But my other kind of main reflection would be is if you, the sort of two main trends that are kind of interesting is, is of course the the increasing vote share for minor parties and independents more generally, so that that's kind of part of the flux. But I mean, I think it would probably be fair to say that the Greens vote seems to be sort of flatlining or just seems to never really seems to be able to shift much more between that 10 to 12%, if that's uh, about right. I could be wrong about the numbers, but the, there's fluctuations, but it's it's never really moved into that position. I think when Richard Di Natale uh, took over the leadership, I think some of his language was really about trying to eat into like a sort of radical centrist kind of view, but but it never really transpires. So I think that the Greens seem like a, like they're a sort of semi permanent part,
1: of the fixture of the furniture there, but they haven't yet really. Move beyond that yet. Queensland and Tasmania are, are really interesting for me for the Senate. Um, I think Tasmania is potentially one where um, the broader left block would hope to to take one away from the Liberals, right? Like I think that's that's a potential opportunity there.
0: Tasmania, that would be a fourth left seat if that happened, right? That would be defeating Erica Betts for that seat.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean there is a little bit of talk about that that there, there is movement in Tasmania so we'll see. That would be a huge deal. Um Queensland is just so volatile that I, it's it's impossible to really know what's going to happen. Um I like the the final senate seat in Queensland could really <laughs> could really go in any direction. You would assume that one of the minor right-wing parties would pick it up, but You know the way that it is in Queensland, that when it it goes, it goes, right? And if the swing is on in Queensland and it's a big swing in the House, maybe that would flow through to the Senate. We don't necessarily always see that. Um, But I think that they're two really interesting races for the final uh, Senate seat in both of those states.
0: And then the House, uh, let's go through a couple of them. We're going to talk in depth about one seat after this conversation, but... um, when the Greens first broke through, often the places they would try and win is they would try and get ahead of the Liberals and then chip away at the Labor vote in what had been very safe Labor seats, get some Liberal preferences and win. And that's how they did it in Melbourne in 2010. And I remember when they would talk about seats like Sydney and grainlaw before that, that's kind of the model that they followed. Uh, but then the Liberals changed their mind and started preferencing Labor and made that path much harder. They still came close to winning Batman and then what became Cooper Using that strategy but it seems now we're seeing a lot more seats where the strategy is more about winning a seat maybe a labor seat it may be a liberal seat but it's much more marginal and the goal is to get ahead of labor and then you get labor's preferences and you win and that's the strategy that they followed to win Ballina and Maywar and Pran at the state level but that path could also be one that's for them and like places where like McNamara and Higgins Uh, and Kuyong and Griffith, which we'll talk about in a minute, have that kind of dynamic. And that would be an interesting change if we saw a situation where they're still competing with Labor, but you may get to a point where there are certain kinds of conservative seats where the Greens are a more feasible opponent than Labor. And that way I, I think does have the potential for a little bit more peace between Labor and the Greens if there was a little bit more of a we'll split up the seats and focus here and focus there.
2: I think that's right in terms of whether Australia kind of works out or plays out because when I particularly speak to uh, kind of Labour politicians uh, around you know obviously these are in many cases inner city metropolitan kind of seats with very strong progressive uh, kind of voters you know university educated you know there's that core part of particularly the Greens profile which which does quite well there but on the Labour side there's this huge resentment that actually Labour are putting up in the, often in these seats, very progressive, uh, parts of the Labour party. And they say, well, look, why are you taking down a voice who speaks up for, you know, issues like immigration, same sex rights, parts, you know, which, which the left of the Labour party says, well, look, we need these voices there. So there's a real sort of unspoken, or mostly unspoken or unpublicly spoken kind of, um, resentment that the Greens target progressive uh, figures and they're saying, you know, that that, that kind of dynamic. So if the strategy is changing and there is a bit more of a kind of look, uh, sort of a tacit uh, understanding about targeting different areas and seats, then in one sense that might actually diffuse some of of those tribal uh, elements within this.
0: It's obvious that if you're Labor, you choose to put those kinds of particular MPs in those kinds of seats, right? So it it becomes a bit of a chicken and egg thing. It's like, why are you targeting these people? And it's like, well, there's a reason why Anthony Albanese, not that he's at all in any danger, but Anthony Albanese and Tanya Plibersek represent the seats they represent. In the same way in the Liberal Party, there's a reason why Trent Zimmerman is where he is and Peter Dutton is not there.
1: Yeah, I also think it's not um, coincidental that um, we can see the Green's strategy potentially changing here you know, at the time that we start to see the Liberal Party be wedged like Labor has been by the Greens for quite a long time by these um, teal independents, right, which actually changes the complete dynamics here of the electoral contest, where um, for a long time, the Liberals, we really thought that they could just fight off Labor and a little bit, the Greens as well, but now they have the teal independence on their side as well, which I think it just changes the dynamics of the contests, and I think that's a really interesting change we're starting to see. And if that continues to play out and it continues to complicate the nature of these races, that could, as Rob said, lead to potentially a, 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 I guess, an improvement in the relationship between Labour and the Greens, and. It also coincides with the decline of the vote for the Liberals as well, where we've seen Labor's primary has been down now for 20 years, that Liberals' primary had held up pretty well in co- contrast to Labor, that if we see the Liberal Party's primary start to slip as well, we, that's we see the contest become more complicated and um, maybe that leads to a more coherent block on the left.
0: I have a theory about... Um you know, Labor and Greens people, particularly in seats where they're competing with each other. It's often quite interesting that you see people who might agree a lot on policy, who just are completely confounded by each other and frustrated and don't understand each other's position. And I think a lot comes back to it's not actually about policy disagreements. Like there are definitely big policy disagreements between Labor and the Greens. We're seeing a lot of this right now with the Vote Compass that came out yesterday, Labor voters, Labor supporters saying, why is Vote Compass telling me I'm more aligned with the Greens? I think there is a decent chunk of Labor supporters and Labor voters who agree more with the Greens on policy, and then they would say, but that's not the whole picture. And a lot of it, I think, comes down for me to what their theory of change about how politics works is. And I don't think these theories are completely mutually exclusive, but if you think of politics as being a thing where you get people in the room and they make decisions and you get the best people in, and it's more of an internal dynamic, it makes sense to get progressive people within a bigger party or in a bigger tent. If you think of politics as being, about outside pressure and about activism and about pushing people to do the right thing rather than getting good people in, then you end up with a position of saying, it's better if I, you know, make life harder for Labour MPs and maybe even defeat them and force them to negotiate with someone else in Parliament. And that, those two different, I think you can actually think, of, which I probably do, both of those schools of thought have value and you kind of need people in both of those roles. You need, people who agree with you on the inside to implement and to be receptive and you need pressure on the outside to push them to do the right thing because there's always going to be pressure in the other direction as well. Um, But I think a lot of these can be explained by that. And I think sometimes that does explain swing voters in these electorates that, you know, if they have a really strong, really senior Labor MP, they'll stay behind them because they're like, I, that makes the Labor theory of change makes more sense for Anthony Albanese than it does for some random new Labor candidate who's hasn't established themselves and doesn't have any serious credibility you know so I think there's there's a lot there about that and I feel like um when I say this it annoys both Labor and Green supporters um particularly Green supporters who say look it is about policy for me but I think um there's a it does explain a lot when you think about it not so much about what policy do you support what you know what should the tax rate be or how much money should we give to private schools but more about how do you achieve particular outcomes the way i kind of
2: think about this particularly is around like the different sets of either policy or ideational constraints around the two different parties or they have and so in one sense what motivates or activates greens voters or many of them will be the kind of idealism you know the kind of the kind of sense that uh, or, or even the sort of the pressing nature of climate breakdown is that well actually we cannot wait we need action now etc etc whereas i think what was crystallized particularly the 2019 election of course would be on one reading is for the labor side of things is that um you know if you have a big you know one one reading perhaps of the failure there uh, or of the kind of shortens effort was just that you know if you go in with too many policies or you look too redistributive, even though many on the Labour and Green side, let say, actually, these were kind of relatively sensible, important, mildly redistributive kind of policies. Uh, But Labour seem to be in this position where they are so, I mean, some of the Labour people I speak to are still haunted by what happened in 2019. And so they, this kind of, for them, this kind of theory of, you know, like you're right around social change is that this there's a, there's a clear demarcation about what you can go into an election campaign and then what you actually do when you get in office. And they are so burned by not being in office for so long that they, they'll just say, well, look, we will take it in. So for me, the compromises around um, stage three of the income tax uh, changes are really profound. This is Labour really shifting away from progressive taxation and it kind of doesn't really get a mutter uh, by the Labour side, because they're like, actually, right now, all we need to do is try and win office. I think they come from quite different starting points and seeking to achieve different things. And this is, of course,
1: the seat of like much of the tension between the two. We did a survey, and a couple of surveys in the last few years, looking at um, attitudes towards populism and liberal democracy and so on and so forth. And one of the startling things was that the group of supporters that had the second strongest set of populist attitudes were the greens um, after one nation now of course it's completely different but it was goes to your point here about the theories of change that there was a, a a perception at least from green supporters that liberal democracy is is not the be all and end all and that actually direct democracy would make a lot more sense that the people should be at the center of this decision making right now that makes a lot of sense intuitively if you know anything about the Greens and their history and movements and so on and so forth, but it was still uh, stark to see it sort of play out in public opinion data the way that it was.
0: And it's very much not the way the history of the Labor Party or the way that Labor people think. Some people might, but like most, it isn't. Uh, now... We're going to zoom in on one particular seat. We're doing a seat of the week each week. This week, we'll be discussing the seat of Griffith, which is on the south bank of the Brisbane River, inner city Brisbane in Queensland. Kevin Rudd won Griffith in 1998 and built up his margin over the next decade, but the seat became a lot more marginal from 2013 onwards. Uh, Terry Butler won the seat for Labor in 2014, and she now holds Griffith by a 2.9% margin. While the LNP is close to winning Griffith, the Greens also have ambitions here. Labor has held on, despite a primary vote of just 31%, uh, thanks to a very healthy 23.7% Greens primary vote. The Greens have been focusing on the electorate with the aim of overtaking Labor and winning on Labor preferences. Uh, The electorate overlaps with Greens-held electorates at two other levels of government. The Greens now hold the state seat of South Brisbane and the Gabba Ward of Brisbane City Council. Glenn, is Griffith the seat you're watching at this election?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's always a seat that attracts a lot of interest. Probably the seat that gets more media coverage than any other seat in Queensland, um, especially in the southeast. Uh, I think since the last election, the view was that this is probably one of the top seats to watch, and I I think that maybe just in the last few months, the the kind of the heightened expectation about the contest in Griffith has has tapered off, and I think a lot of that's got to do with the sense that Labor is going to improve their vote in Queensland and that they're going to move forward. So the the perception on the ground from a lot of people is that Griffith is very likely to be safe for Labor now, and that um, while Griffith may have been the probably the key seat in southeast Queensland for a lot of people up until a few months ago. That's sort of shifted and now we're seeing other seats come into play, which there's similar dynamics at work like Ryan and Brisbane are seen kind of on a level pegging with Griffith in terms of their significance.
0: But they're seats that have a lower Labor vote, right? Indeed. If the issue in Griffith for the Greens is that uh, Labor picks up its vote, even if the Greens vote doesn't fall and that gap widens, um, whereas in Ryan and Brisbane, it's more about the falling LNP vote.
1: Exactly. Um, and there's certainly a perception that um, on the ground, that the inner city areas, Griffith, Brisbane and Ryan, that the LNP vote in those electorates is is likely to decline their primary. So the dynamics at work there, I think, are very interesting about what this means for which seats are actually most competitive for the Greens in this contest. So I think that Ryan. Personally, I think Ryan is actually more of a chance for the Greens right now than Griffith.
0: And Ryan, one thing I noticed very interesting about that seat, traditionally safe heartland Liberal seat, wealthy, high education, all of these things make it perfect terrain for the teal independents. But there's no teal independents running there. You know, they're running in Adelaide, Perth, um, Sydney, Melbourne, but no sign of them in Ryan or anywhere in Brisbane, frankly. So maybe that just leaves the space. I don't know if you have any theories about why that is, but that that does create room for the Greens there, which where they might be crowded out by these independents in other places. There was an
1: attempt to attract a teal independent in in Ryan. And I believe that they were in discussions and it fell over at the the last hurdle. So there was certainly a sense from the Climate 200 group that they could put someone in that seat and be competitive. And I think that makes sense based on, you know, the results we've seen at the state level as well. So I, I agree with you. I think this does open up uh, an opportunity for the Greens in Ryan, um, that maybe previously the, the the thought was that Griffith, they could continue to increase their vote, take over Labor and win the seat. But that seems to be less likely now.
2: Interesting reflection. And Glenn knows the, the specifics of the details. But what's interesting, isn't it, about how climate and the environment is now almost a wedge issue for the Liberal Party in a way it never used to be. And sometimes this was a wedge issue for Labor. And these these two candidates is really changing that kind of uh, dynamic. And it, it really is putting them under kind of pressure. And you can see how uh, Angus Taylor and the energy debates, in one sense, reflects this is a really, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wedge issue, which, which, the Liberals had hoped by sort of signing up to a kind of the, the, the big headline claim of net zero by 2050 would would neutralise, and it hasn't, and this has been uh, kind of
1: interesting part of the dynamics. Yeah, and I think if you see, you know, if we come back to Griffith, you know, these debates, it's previously we'd seen this play out for Labour where um, if Labour did well in Flynn or Herbert or Capricornia, they were going to do bad in Griffith and vice versa, right? And now we're seeing this play out for the L&P in Queensland as well. That whatever their policies are on these issues, it might work well in one region and work against them in another region. So the dynamics here of electoral competition are starting to to rejig a little bit. We're starting to see some changes, and again, we're starting to see the L&P put under some of the precious Labor's been under.
0: I don't know about you guys, but uh, I always find it really interesting and enjoyable when you can see. You know, we always focus on the short-term political change, but there is long-term political change that happens much more slowly but is much more permanent and meaningful. And sometimes you get a glimpse of that long-term change as it's happening. You know, most of the time we're too close to the object to be able to see it, but occasionally you get a glimpse and I really enjoy when you do. And I think there's a little bit of that going on right now with these teal independent races. And maybe a little bit of that is premature, but there's definitely a shift happening there. One other thing I want to add about Griffith before we finish up, uh, I really enjoy seeing electorates where you get um, a real contrast between one part of the seat and another part and how they vote. And Griffith is a good one for that. If you check out my election guide for Griffith, and there's some maps on there now, the Greens do extremely well at the western end of the electorate, our kind of South Brisbane, West End, those suburbs. There's a couple of booths there where the primary vote the last election was 46 41%. And then at the eastern end, it gradually tapers off, and it's still what would be a pretty good Greens vote in a lot of places, but you're talking 13 15 18%. So it's a real contrast. It's one of those It reminds me a bit of Cooper and Wills in Melbourne where the southern end of the electorate, if you took the the southern chunk of those two electorates and combine them together, you'd probably make a Green seat. In the same way, if you took that western end of Griffith and stitched it together with some bits of Brisbane and Ryan, you would probably make a Greens electorate. Um, but they now the challenge for them is they're building on that base, which has allowed them to win the state seat and the council ward and trying to build up their vote in the weaker part of the electorates, which can be done to a certain extent, but it's it's a difficult task.
1: Yeah, the the socio-demographics in Griffith are fascinating if you move through the electorate. Um, And having uh, been on the doors in this electorate previously, I can tell you that uh, knocking on doors in West End is a little bit different to knocking on doors in Cannon Hill, right? So um, it's a very diverse electorate where you've got that real mix of bohemian student vibe, um, wealthy liberals, and then blue-collar mixed with Housing Commission. It's kind of a bit of everything, this electorate. And I think that shows when you look at the primary vote of um, the LNP Greens and Labor.
0: Mind you, you have a bit of that all over Brisbane, right? That's a story for another day. But um, the theory about how Brisbane's hills lead to it, having a lot of marginal seats and not many safe seats because all the different demographics all get mixed together with each other. Uh, but that's a story for another day. Um, I'd like to wrap up now, unless either of you have any last thoughts. Great. So that's about it for this episode of The Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Rob and Glenn, for joining me. Thanks, Rob. Uh, thanks i Ben. And thanks, Glenn.
1: Thanks, Ben.
0: You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.